Good morning, family. Everybody grab a Bible and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be on page 920 in the Bibles around the room, Acts 12. And when I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and you're going to say, thanks be to God, because at our church, we believe this is the inspired Word of God, and we're very, very thankful. All right, Acts 12. Oh, it's so exciting. This is an exciting chapter, you guys. Okay, hang on. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. It was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And they, he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning with it, Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Then he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that may we see your blessings. And we can see when somebody is knocking on our door and your answers to our prayers, that we may be a thankful people. Open our hearts and our ears to hear your words as you speak to us through Kyle's message. Open our hearts that we may receive the message that you love us deeply and sent your son Jesus to die for our sins so that we could be your children. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Melanie. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Kyle. Welcome to Living Sounds. You enjoying the weather? I am. Uh, on Thursday, I went to Denver. It was when we left. It was Thursday afternoon. It was like 80 degrees here, and then we got to Denver. It was snowing. People were building snowmen in Denver. It was like going back in time three months to January. So I'm really glad to be back. Got back last night, um, and it's good to be here worshiping. Uh, kind of has made me laugh all morning. Uh, Pastor Gavin's voice is a little raspy. I don't know if you noticed. He sounds like the Godfather. So the Godfather <laughs> is leading us in worship today. But we are in Acts chapter 12. So if you didn't have a Bible open for that reading, grab one now, open it up to Acts chapter 12. The reason being is we go at this church through books of the Bible, and we want you to see that what we're saying comes from the Bible, and it's not just our opinions. It comes from the Bible. And uh, we set Bibles around the room, and on those Bibles, it's on page 920. And if you don't have a Bible, we in fact want to just give you that Bible. You can take that Bible home as a gift. And if you're looking on where to start reading your Bible, I would recommend starting in the Gospel of Luke because that is the place where Luke talks about um, the life of Jesus. And in fact, Luke is the same person who wrote the book of Acts. So the Gospel of Luke is about the story of Jesus and the book of Acts is about the story of Jesus continuing his work through the church. So the story of Acts is about the church starting and advancing and spreading throughout the world. And so we're in Acts chapter 12. Now, uh, in this chapter, uh, Luke is pastoring us. He's, in a way, putting his arm around us, and he's encouraging us when we feel beat up and discouraged. Do you ever feel beat up and discouraged, especially when you're trying to do the right thing, but you're facing opposition. This chapter is for you. Um, when Luke wrote this, it, he wrote this during a time where the church was trying and striving to cling to Jesus, but they were facing a lot of opposition and persecution. And Luke writes and, and he reminds them that throughout the whole age of the church, the church has faced opposition. Opposition is inevitable. But this chapter shows us that God's plan is unstoppable. And so he, he, he puts his arm around us and he encourages us with those words that God is an active God in his world and we need to continue to cling to him. That's my main point. Opposition is inevitable, but God's plan is unstoppable. So let's just get into it. Verse one of chapter 12. It says, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So the setting of this is it's AD 44. The emperor at the time is Claudius of Rome. And it says here that there's this character named Herod. Now, it's AD 44. This is 15 years after Jesus has ascended from the grave and risen up into heaven. So a lot of years has transpired in just a couple pages. 15 years. Like, some of you were still 
in preschool 15 years ago. And uh, this church, like, this church only started in 2011, six years ago. So, I mean, 15 years is a long time. So we need to keep that in mind as this is going on. So 15 years, AD 44, and it says that there's this guy named Herod. Now, Herod, this is Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, which you read about in the beginning of the book of Matthew. Remember Herod the Great? In the book of Matthew, uh, when Jesus was about to be born, some wise men came from the east, and they said that they were looking for a king who was about to be born. And so they went to Herod the Great, and they said, where is this king? And Herod the Great heard about it, and he heard that this king was going to be great, and he freaked out because he didn't want there to be a king greater than him. So he had all the children in Bethlehem two years younger, two years and younger, killed. That's Herod the Great. And this is his grandson. So needless to say, uh, this man comes from a line of people who don't like Jesus, who don't like Jesus. So this is Herod Agrippa. And um, he's a Jewish man, but he was childhood buddies with the emperor Gaius and now the emperor Claudius. So those two emperors ended up giving Herod Agrippa a huge piece of land to be his territory in the land of Judea. So he's kind of like a demi-king in the land of Rome. And so uh, they, or uh, of the Roman Empire. So they gave him a huge part of land. And it says here in verses one and two that he began to lay violent hands on the church. Now that's kind of graphic language. It's not like he, you know, shut the church doors and said, you guys can't worship here. He laid violent hands on them. Like gatherings like this, he would send soldiers in and drag people away from their families screaming because they were identifying with Jesus Christ. I mean, this is some opposition here. And it says here in verse two, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He killed James. Now, James uh, was one of Jesus' apostles. Jesus had 12 apostles. And uh, Jesus had three that were his best friends, Peter, John, and James. They were his inner circle. Jesus even nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder. And so Herod kills one of the sons of thunder. What a heartbreaking thing for the church. What a heartbreaking thing for the church. And look at what it says in verse 3. It says, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Herod's going after the big dogs. And, he, and the reason why, it says in verse 3, is because it pleased the Jews. So why is Herod causing this opposition to Christianity? Because it pleased the Jews. Because he was a man seeking the approval of men in his kingdom. He wasn't seeking truth. He was seeking approval. And it says that it pleased the Jews. So here's what you need to know about the first century. Um, Christians did not view themselves as starting a new religion. The first Christians were Jews, and they believed that Jesus was the promised king talked about in the Jewish Old Testament. So they didn't think that they were starting something new. They, they thought that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament says. Amen? Amen. And, but the, there was Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. That they didn't believe that he was the king. They didn't believe he was from God. And so they thought Christians were starting a heretical sect. And what happened is they were so scared that God was going to bring wrath on Israel because of these Christians who are heretics that they thought that the idea to what they needed to do was they needed to imprison and kill all the Christians. That's what they needed to do. And because Herod wanted the approval of man more than he wanted truth, he joined along. He joined along. And what we see here 
is Luke is juxtaposing uh, two categories of people. One fits into the category of Herod, and the other fits into the category of James and the church. Um, Herod wanted to gain approval so bad that he was willing to kill for it. But the church, like James, already knew they had the approval of God, and they were satisfied with it so much that they were willing to die for Jesus. You see, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus come? It wasn't just to show us a better way. It was to rescue our souls. It was to make us children of God. So he died on the cross for our sins and he resurrected so that we could have new life with God. So when God looks at us, if you're in Jesus Christ, he said, you are my beloved son and daughter with whom I'm well pleased. And when that resonates in your soul, you will have courage to face opposition. You'll have courage to face it. And so Luke is juxtaposing those two things. You're either going to live for approval or from approval. For approval of man or from the approval that comes from God. And Luke is also showing us the two different kingdoms that are at play in this world. There's the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of man is all into exalting ourselves. But the kingdom of God looks like laying down yourself for the glory of God. And that's what James and the church were willing to do. And uh, you see, the Jews didn't like Jesus because Jesus came to lay his life down. And their idea of the Messiah, the anointed king, was a king who would come and conquer and power and glory. He looked like a Roman empire. And, and he would, they, they thought that he was going to deliver them from all their political enemies. But what they failed to realize is that they needed a spiritual savior before they needed a political savior. They needed a king who would die before they needed a king who would conquer. Because if Jesus just came as a kinker, a king, a kinker. <laughs> Sorry, Jesus. <laughs> If Jesus just came as a king who would conquer, we're all screwed. We need a king who would die for our sins first. Now, there is a day when he's coming again to conquer, but first he has died to offer us grace. But they didn't like that about Jesus. And because Herod was so concerned and gaining approval, he wasn't interested in seeking truth, so he joined along. And so what this just shows us is that in every age, I mean, keep in mind, this is Jesus got killed 15 years earlier, and the People, the world is still opposing Christians and Jesus. It's going to happen. Didn't Jesus promise that this would happen? In John 15, he said, a servant is not greater than his master. He's, he's saying, you think you're better than me? No, you're not better than me. If they killed me, they're going to persecute you. It's like, have you ever had a bad like, meal experience? And every time you think of that food, it just makes you sick. You know what I'm talking about? Like my wife had a bad Taco Bell experience when she was pregnant. And so now every time I mention Taco Bell or she thinks about it, it makes her sick, which is really unfortunate for me because I love Taco Bell for some weird reason. What Jesus is saying is like, look, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you who has the aroma of Christ. If the thought of me makes them sick, it's the church is going to make them sick also. And they're going to reject you. Opposition is inevitable. Um, so the question that Luke, I think, is posing for us is this. In the face of opposition, are we going to be like Herod or are we going to be like James? Are we going to be like Herod who is so consumed with gaining approval from people that we abandon truth? That we might even go to lengths that we never thought we would go to in order to gain approval. 
I'm sure Herod didn't think when he was a little kid, you know what, I'm going to grow up and kill people so people will like me. I'm sure that wasn't part of his mindset. But because he gave himself over and over and over to gaining man's approval, it's like Luke's way of saying, if you make approval your highest goal, beware of how far you will go to attain it. We can go really far to get our idols. So are we going to be like Herod? Or are we going to be like James and these anonymous Christians and Peter who are so confident that they were sons and daughters of God, that they didn't need approval from man, that they were willing to lay down their life for the truth of Jesus Christ? They had the mindset that, well, if God's for me, who can be against me? If you kill me, well, you'll help me because I'll get to God sooner. (laughs) That was their mindset. Are we going to be like Herod or are we going to be like the church? This is a call for us to be like the church, to be like James, to be like Peter. Now, um, we as a church are probably not going to face opposition in the threat of getting dragged out of here and being put in prison and being killed, although one day we may. And it's happening right now across the world. But we will face opposition today in this culture. And so I'm going to list a few ways which I think will face opposition Um, And as I say these things, I understand that many of you are guests and you're investigating Christianity. And just hear me, I'm not attacking you as I say these things, but I'm talking to the Christians here. And I'm saying these are things that that the Bible says, but Christians are going to get opposed for. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to really investigate and see what we're talking about. So first thing as as the church that we're going to get opposed for is this, is that salvation, hear me clearly, salvation is by grace, And it's exclusively through Jesus Christ. We're going to get opposed for that. It's by grace. Meaning nobody earns their way to heaven. We do not climb a ladder to heaven with our good works. Heaven comes down to us in Jesus Christ. And that is going to offer us opposition because every funeral I go to, um, and I do a handful of funerals every year, There's always people who stand up and say, I know that this person was a good person, therefore they're in a better place. But as Christians, we humbly say, that's not what the Bible says. Nobody can earn their way to God. The only way we can get to God is because God came to us. None of our morality is good enough. If we consider our morality compared to God's standard of righteousness, we look like like slobs. We look like enemies of God. But the good news of the gospel is that even as enemies of God, he still came and died for us. And because he's the only one who came and died for us, there is salvation under no other name. There's no other way. No other religion offers a God that has come to die for our sins. Muhammad didn't die for our sins. Buddha didn't die for our sins. The idea, the Mormon idea of Jesus, they say he died for our sins, but he functions more like a coach and you still have to earn your way to God. But the Bible says you don't earn your way, you receive it. And that's the grace. And we're going to face opposition as we say Jesus is the only way. And we don't say that out of arrogance. We say that because we're just on our knees grateful that he's offered us a way. So we're going to face opposition for that. Second thing we're going to face opposition for is our belief in the sanctity of human life at all stages. From the womb to the tomb. As Christians, God values children in the womb. And he considers them just as much a child as after they're born. And so as Christians, we are going to stand and we say that abortion 
is taking human life and it's murder. And we're going to face opposition for that. Now, I know as I say that, this gets heavy because many women have had abortions in here. and Many men have asked the lady that got pregnant to have an abortion. And so I'm not saying that you are condemned because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And his blood is enough to cover us all, no matter what we've done. But we do need to understand that it is murder. But we're also going to face opposition from valuing life outside of the womb. As Christians, God calls us to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow and the homeless guy and the drug addict and the criminal. The criminal in prison is just as much value as the baby in the womb, no matter what they've done. And so here's where we're going to face opposition. God calls the church to love perverts and murderers because before God, we all stand as sinners. So that's going to bring opposition. And we need to be confident that we're sons of God if we're going to stand in this kind of truth. The, second thing, the third thing that we're going to face opposition for is the Bible's stance on sexuality. God made us male and female. He made us that way. It's not a choice. Um, and that's, we're entering into an age where we're going to face opposition for that. And then uh, lastly, he, he gives sex to humanity as a gift, but it's to be used in the context of heterosexual marriage. Like fire is a gift to humanity, but not if you use it outside of the limits that it's designed for, it can be very dangerous. And the same with sex. And God has called for sex to be used in heterosexual marriage. And our culture is a culture that says, sex is like food. If you're hungry, eat it. And it doesn't matter what kind or with who, just go for it. But God says, no, I care deeply about this. And so as we stand for this, we're going to face opposition because it's, it's diametrically opposed to the ways of the world. And we don't do this with arrogance in our hearts. We do this with gentleness in our hearts. And the thing is, is that we're even, we're going to struggle with these things sometimes. But as Christians, we say, because Jesus died and resurrected, well, he kind of gets to tell me what to do. His word stands above my opinions. Are we going to be like Herod who gives in to the approval of man? Or are we going to be like James and Peter and the church who stands on the truth of Christ? Okay? Opposition is inevitable. But God. That's my second point. But God. God is at work even in the face of opposition. God is at work even when it seems like he's not at work. And the Christians here believe that. That's why they go in verse 5. It says, look at what happened here. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him by the church to God. So what's happening here is uh, Peter, it's like Peter's their dude, man. He's like their lead dog. That's their guy. He's their leader. And he gets put in prison. And what does the church do? They pray. They earnestly pray, it says. That's the first thing they do. They don't say, well, uh, uh, you know, they don't get together and be like, well, I know some people that know some people that hurt some people. We can get them out of here. And they don't say, well, you know, let's protest. And they don't say, well, uh, let's try to pull some strings politically to get them out. Maybe we can make a bride and get them out. They pray. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a time to peacefully protest and there's not a time to, you know, break people out of prison. (laughs) But all of our actions must be preceded by earnest prayer. 
and too often Christians run to the work of our hands instead of the work of God's. And so as what they, the first thing they do because they believe God's at work, they run to him. They don't go, well, God really fumbled this one, didn't he? I guess we're screwed. Peter's dead. He gone. Like they, like they didn't do that. They believed in God's power. They believed in God's control. They believed in God's character that he is by nature a rescuing God. And so they prayed to him. A little nerd nugget here for you is in uh, verse uh, 4. It says that the time was Passover. And so let's nerd out for a moment on this. Uh, Passover was the time when all the Jews gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate God's miraculous rescue. And so this was a very politically charged time because all the Jews were there in Jerusalem. So Herod picked this as an opportune time to make his name more famous. And then secondly, what was on the minds of the people during Passover? God's rescue of them in the book of Exodus, which happened 1,500 years earlier. Remember the story? God came to the, the people who were enslaved in Egypt, and they cried out to God. God heard their prayers, and he came, and through miraculous ways, 10 plagues, he brought them out of slavery into freedom. The last plague was a plague of death for all sinners. But God said, I'll offer you a way out. If you sacrifice a lamb in your place, you can spread his blood on your doorposts and the lamb will die instead of your firstborn son. And anybody who did that was able to go free. Remember that? Because God's wrath passed over. And then when they left and they were going free, Pharaoh decided, I don't want to let my slaves go. And so he went to pursue them. And as they were running away from Pharaoh, they got up to the Red Sea and they started to freak out because there's a sea and an army behind them. And when it looked like all odds were against them, what did God do? He split the sea. That's kind of a big deal. He split the sea. They walked through on dry ground. And then as Pharaoh's army chased them in, the sea collapsed on them. And God's people literally, check this out, went from rags to riches by the blood of the lamb. (laughs) Miraculously. So that was on their minds. Not only that, several times peppered throughout the Bible, Passover was a time where God showed up in different ways to miraculously show his people that he's still rescuing them. So for example, 40 years after God delivered them from Egypt, remember they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years? And as they wandered around the wilderness, how did God feed them? He brought uh, manna from heaven. It was like frosted flakes all over the ground that came up with the dew of the earth. And uh, God brought them this manna And they ate the manna, and God gave it to them every day, sustaining them every day. And then when they finally got into the the promised land, 40 years later, guess on what day the the manna stopped? Passover. And it was on Passover that they finally ate the produce of the land. And it was God's way of telling them, look, I'm a rescuing God, and I'm a sustaining God, and I'm still at work in your life. And then, by the way, it just continues on. And what day did Jesus die on the cross? Passover. God is still rescuing his people. And Passover is a time where God's people traditionally every year think about God's miraculous rescue. So that's what's happening when Peter's put in prison and these people start earnestly praying. They're thinking about his rescue. Now, I'm sure the pessimists are like, no, Peter's gone. And, but all the optimists remember, like, no, it's, it's Passover. God rescues on Passover. Let us pray to him and see what he will do. So that's what's happening. So God answers. Verses 6 through 17, we're just going to go verse by verse and break it down. So, now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, 
Peter was sleeping in between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So what we have here is Peter, it says that there's four squads of soldiers to uh, be around Peter. So there was a squad was four soldiers, and there was four of them. So there was one for every three-hour watch of the night. So Peter was under constant surveillance. He had to sleep in between two soldiers, and he was chained with two chains. This is Luke's way of saying escape for Peter is humanly impossible. Okay, and then what it goes on, it says in verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. So an angel of the Lord comes. Now, angels in the Bible are warriors of light, not little babies with cute faces and diapers. They're warriors of light. And he shows up in the cell, and it says that he struck Peter and said, Get up quickly. I wonder if the angel was, like, trying to wake Peter up. Peter seems like a deep sleeper to me. You know, he's like, Peter, Peter. And then finds like, Peter, wake up. <laughs> he wakes up, and it says the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. Like, the angel's like, nobody wants to see you in your underwear. Put on your sandals, get dressed. And he did so, and he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought it was seeing a vision. So Peter thought that this was a dream that he was having. And when he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So they're going out, they get to the gate of the city, and it just opens up, Peter walks out, and the angel bounces. And in verse 11, it says, when Peter came to himself, he said, no, I'm sure that the Lord has sent into the angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So I, Peter's like pinching himself out there. He's like, this really happened. I'm free. Verse 12, it says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, uh, Peter was delivered on the night before he was killed, but they were praying the whole week. Sometimes God doesn't show up till the last minute. And when he had knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. <laughs> That's kind of funny. She's like, Peter? Oh, Peter from jail? And then she leaves him. <laughs> and they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. So here's what's happening. Rhoda goes in. She's like, no, Peter's really there. And they're like, you're crazy. It's an angel. Now, what's more like, I mean, either way, it would be impressive. An angel <laughs> or Peter being rescued. And they're like, you're crazy. It's just an angel, you know. And Rhoda's like, no, this is really it. And what Luke is doing here is he's offering a little commentary that Greek culture would understand. See, in Greek culture, in comedies, they would often make fun of slaves as if they were the fools. But here, what do we see happening? It's not the slave who's the fool. It's the people. The slave is right. And that's just kind of Luke's way of saying, look, this is how God works in the world. He makes the foolish things of the wise, foolish things of the world shame the wise. And that's what's happening. But in 16, it says, uh, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. So they're like, it's true. It's really you, Peter. And they were amazed. They were amazed. That's an appropriate response to seeing God at work. Amazement. 
but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. I mean, they were going, they were going buck wild because he had to calm them down. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Now it's James, the brother of Jesus. And then he departed and went to another place. So God showed up. What is Luke trying to show us here in this section? He's trying to show us that when against all gods, or against all odds, God is still working his plan. God is still powerful enough to rescue. I mean, imagine how encouraging this must have been to the persecuted church when they heard this story. God can still work in this world. And if he determines to rescue his people, there ain't nothing that's going to stop God. Psalm 2 says the nations rage and they plot against God, but it says they do it in vain because God sits on his throne and laughs at them. You think you're powerful. (laughs) And Luke goes out of his way to show what kind of extent that they were willing to go to detain Peter. Four squads, 16 soldiers. He slept in between two of them and he was bound with two chains. But for God's like, that's no big deal. I made people. I made soldiers. And I'm the creator of metal. I can undo anything. It's like trying to lock a locksmith out of his own house with his kids inside. He's like, I'm going to get to my kids. And I'm a locksmith. I can get through any lock. You see, God is saying, I want to rescue my son. And there ain't anything that's going to stop me from rescuing my son. And what this shows us here is application is there's no situation in which God cannot rescue. God is not bound by the evil of humanity. And what this means for us is as a church that we should be like this church, earnest in prayer because we believe in God's control and we believe in his power and we believe in his character. Earnest in prayer. We need to be praying continuously. Now notice they prayed for several days. It wasn't just like, well, we prayed for like 10 minutes and nothing happened. They were earnest in it for several days. And then secondly, it means that because, uh, there's a second application. God delivered Peter, but he didn't deliver James. And so as we pray, we believe that God can rescue, but we also pray humbly knowing that if he chooses not to, he has the right. He has the right. And this is actually a picture of how God works in salvation, isn't it? Notice what God doesn't do to deliver Peter. He doesn't show up and give Peter some instructions on how to pick a lock and how to do jujitsu on the guards, and then how to run really fast and get out of there. He doesn't do that. God shows up through his angel and does all the work. And that's what salvation is. That's what it means to be a Christian. God doesn't come and say, if you live this way, you can, you can be free. God says, no, you need me to absolutely 100% rescue you. And some of you are here today, many of us are here today with the idea that Jesus is not the bedrock rescuer of your life. You think that he's an add-on to make your life better, but that's not who he is. He's not, fundamentally, Jesus is not a teacher to show you a way. Fundamentally, Jesus is not a counselor to make you feel better about yourself. Fundamentally, Jesus is a rescuer and he's the king of the universe. Now he is a teacher and he does comfort us, but he's fundamentally a rescuer. He's a rescuing king. And so some of you today, this is your invitation from Luke to say to God, God, I cannot save myself. Would you please save my soul? Because I got chains on me. Maybe it's chains of of, of things in your life that are binding you up. 
You're never going to get anywhere through self-improvement. You need Jesus Christ. He needs to rescue you. Call out to him today. Today is the day of your salvation if you trust in him. And what this shows us is that opposition is inevitable, but God's plan is unstoppable. And look at what happens in verse 18. It says, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. You think? (laughs) I wonder at what point the soldiers realized Peter wasn't there. They're just like, oh, snap, he's gone. (laughs) And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and he spent time there. So Herod shows up, he freaks out on the soldiers, and he puts them to death. Now, this was Roman custom. If a Roman soldier lost its prisoner, they were put to death. That was Roman custom. So it also shows us that you could be dang well sure that they weren't going to fall asleep on the job. So a miracle did happen. But I think Luke throws that in because he's showing how hard-hearted Herod really was. Here a miracle happens, and Herod has to face the miracle, and instead of investigating truth, he kills his soldiers. He kills his soldiers. Church, let us not, when God does work, freak out because it's not accomplishing our purposes. Let us instead investigate truth. Verse 20 through 23, it says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. So here's what's happening. Herod, is he goes to a place of Caesarea, and he is the king. And there's another area just north of this, the area of Tyre and Sidon. And uh, he has, because he's angry with them like a child, he's blocked off their food supply. And so they want food. They're hungry. So they come to him and they say, will you let us make peace with the king? And so his uh, servant, his chamberlain, uh, makes him a day where he can meet with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And he puts on a robe, it says. Josephus, the historian, says that his robe was laced with uh, silver so that it would glitter. He was a very glittery man and as he stood there in the sun. He sat on his throne in glitter, and he uh, delivered this speech, and they started shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Now, you see what's happening here. Herod is going out of his way. He's seated on a throne. He's manufacturing his own glory. And then they start acknowledging him as God. They started acknowledging him as God. And look at what God does in verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He was eaten by worms. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Now that's a little weird, right? The people say this. God kills him. And he's eaten by worms, but the word of God continues to move forward. Now, why would Luke show this last little story about Herod when it has nothing to do with Christians right here in that section? Nothing to do. I think Luke is doing a couple things. First of all, I think Luke is showing us the nature of God's persistent grace. The nature of God's persistent grace. Um, Why does he say that it was... Herod didn't get killed for... uh, the people calling him God, what did he get killed for? Not denying it. 
And so this is Luke's way of saying, even with this narcissistic murderer, God was still reaching out to him and giving him opportunities to glorify God. That's the grace of God. If you're a murderer, if you're a narcissist, if you're a horrible person, God is constantly reaching out to you until the day you die saying, believe in me and give glory to me. Amen. Hallelujah. God is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love, but his patience does have an end because he is a God of justice. And God will not share his throne. Psalm 5 says, evil may not dwell with God and the boastful shall not stand before his presence. Luke describes Herod as being killed and eaten by worms. Eaten by worms. Why does he throw that in? I think the reason he throws that in is because um, Jesus, when he talks about hell, he says hell is a place where people will die and the worm will not die. And so I think Luke is using this imagery to, to talk about the horrific destruction that Herod faced because of his self-exaltation. Now, the, um, the historian Josephus says that uh, Herod died. He, he collapsed on this day, but he died a week later. And the reason he died is because he was in agony. He was literally eaten from the inside out by worms. And what this just shows us is that the end of self-exaltation is horrific destruction at the hand of God. And again, Luke is drawing a contrast. He's saying, in verse 16 up above, it says the church was amazed by God, but who was Herod amazed with? Himself. And if we live lives that are seeking to be amazed by ourselves, it has a bitter end. As John Piper said on, the, in, on this text, he said, if you oppose God, you lose. But if you cling to God, you win. And that is basically what this is saying. Now, for application, I think Luke is giving us a warning and an encouragement. The warning is this. For whom is your life living to exalt? Herod was living to exalt himself. So much so that when people claimed to be God, he, he didn't deny it. Now, you, I know you're like, I would never claim to be God. But you know who you exalt by... The one who you exalt is the person you think most about. Who is that person? Let's be honest. We, Luke, this is an invitation and a warning from us, from Luke, saying you need to confront your inner Herod. Because we all have ways that we're trying to manif manufacture our own exaltation. And this needs to be confronted because it has a bitter end. And it's a life away from God. And it's a life of bitter destruction by his hand. But the encouragement is also for us too. Because Luke is writing to a persecuted church who's wondering and looking at the tyrants of evil. Luke is saying to them, though evil men rise up, God's word and God's plan will always prevail. That's why it says the word of God increased and multiplied. And there's nowhere that this is displayed more clearly than in the cross of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus dying on the cross was the most horrific event in human history. He's the only innocent man to ever live. Like imagine being one of his brothers or sisters. Like his mom's like, can't you just be like Jesus, you know? <laughs> but he was the kind of person who always made everybody felt loved and wanted. He, he was perfect in all of his ways. He was God in the flesh. He did many miracles to demonstrate that he was God in the flesh. And yet he was killed as a criminal. And where Herod was trying to manufacture his glory by making himself glorious, 
on the cross, the glorious one made himself shamed. He didn't have a robe of glory. He had a robe of mockery on when he was beaten and hoisted up. And it's a, it's a direct contrast. But Jesus also just didn't die on the cross. He resurrected from the grave, giving us a future hope. And our hope is not in somebody who manufactures his own glory. The reality is, is that when we see just Jesus, he, we won't have to, he won't have to wear a robe that makes it himself shine in the sun. He himself will shine brighter than the sun because he is the glorious one. And as Gavin said in the first service, like we won't be shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Everybody will know when Jesus speaks, this is God and he's with us. He is the glorious one. And so this is a call for us to cling to Jesus and to not align with Herod because we want the approval of others. Now there's three things, we'll close with this, just three things. Verse 24 is what we want to see happen in northern Nevada. The word increased and multiplied. So as Living Sons Church, as we've been saying, our goal over the next 20 years, 30 years, is to see a fundamental shift in the spiritual climate of northern Nevada. We want to see people worship God. We want to see the word increase. What's it going to take? Well, if we step back and we look at what it took to get there in this chapter, there's three things. First of all, we need to be willing to have the courage to face opposition. Second thing is we need to be earnest in our prayers. We can't give up on our prayers. For five months now, we've been praying after every church service for 10 minutes. And when we started, the group was big, but each week it dwindles a little bit more. Church, let us continue to be earnest in our prayers because God is still a rescuing God, amen? And then third, we need to be full of amazement towards God. Did you notice that? Herod was amazed with himself, but the people of the church were amazed with the works of God. And as God's people are amazed with his work, They'll talk about him, and when they talk about him, his word advances, and when they pray to him, mighty things happen. And so that's what we want to see happen. So let's be this and know with confidence that even when we face opposition, because it's inevitable, we have confidence that God's plan is unstoppable. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that your plan is unstoppable. And uh, gosh, as I say this about Herod, I'm confronted with the ways that I'm constantly seeking self-exaltation. I just pray that you would forgive me and help me. And I pray that you would teach us better the way of Christ. And we ask God that you really would increase and move in this uh, place in Northern Nevada. We ask that as Christians, you would help us to be gentle in our opposition, in our standing against opposition. That we wouldn't try to win arguments, that we would try to win people but we would still have the courage to stand with the truth. We ask also, God, that you would help us make us people of prayer. Make us people who are just hungry to seek your face. And then lastly, God, we just ask that you would help us to walk in amazement. Sometimes we're blind to your work and we need you to open up our eyes. Make us an amazed people, a joyfully filled people so that you can receive all the glory. And we praise your name forever and ever, amen.